Take our Bibles this morning and go to the book of Genesis, chapter number 24, please. The 24th chapter of the book of Genesis is where we'll find our text this morning. It's been a few weeks since I've had opportunity uh, to preach uh, here on Sunday morning because of vacation schedule and that sort of thing. And I'm delighted uh, to be back and grateful for the opportunity uh, to once again jump back into this message series here that we've been preaching on the life of Abraham. Would you look with me, if you would, in Genesis chapter number 24, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country, into my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware. Thou, that thou bring not my son thither again, the Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swear to him concerning that matter. The title of the message this morning is A Bride for Isaac. A Bride for Isaac. Abraham's wife, Sarah, had now been dead for three years. And uh, his promised and beloved son Isaac by this point is now nearly 40 years old when Abraham determines to begin the process of finding a bride for his 40-year-old son. Now this process, I have to tell you, looks completely foreign uh, to those of us today as Isaac in our text will will seemingly have no input whatsoever into the bride that is selected for him. Now think about that for just a moment. Uh, we, uh, we do things completely different in our culture and in our day and age today than the way that things were done back then. Um, Abraham enlists in our text, he enlists the help of his eldest servant who will be responsible for traveling to a foreign land and, and selecting and obtaining a bride for his son. So, so not only is Abraham not going to do this, but Abraham is going to send his, his, his servant, his eldest servant, to go and to find a wife for his son Isaac. Now, most of us in our culture, we read this account and we are filled with absolute horror at the, uh, at what is being presented here. Uh, that, that not only, not only would, would we as, uh, the person that's going to be married to this person for the rest of our lives, we don't get a choice in the, in the matter. It's not even our parents that are getting the choice, but in, in, in res- some respects, our, our, our parents are, are sending their, their best servant, maybe their best employee, to go find a wife or a spouse for us that we will live with for the rest of our lives. And so, again, we, we recoil almost in shock when we read this. But allow me to say that while we don't know exactly how much 
separation and divorce there was in Abraham's day, it seems pretty minuscule compared with maybe the levels of divorce and separation that we consider in our world today. I'm not advocating that we go back to this, but I am saying, I am saying that, you know, that maybe we're not, we're not as right in what we're doing as maybe we like to think that we are. Today we are told that almost half of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce. And that the United States has the sixth highest divorce rate in the world. Some will divorce and, and, and then they'll remarry thinking that they made a mistake the first time, but I've learned some things and, and, and I, I, I now feel like I'm better suited, uh, to, to enter into this covenant relationship. However, the numbers reveal that 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And so some are, some have done it, you know, married, divorced, remarried and divorced again and thought, you know, I really just, I really just didn't know what I was doing those first two times, but this time I've got it all figured out. Not so fast, my friend. The statistics reveal that 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. I would just say, if you've gotten to that point, you might as well just move on altogether, right? And just decide, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to, ride out the rest of this life, you know, single, I think, I think what, what ends up happening is, as these numbers reveal, it isn't as easy as blaming a failed marriage on the other person. A lot of times we like to do that, don't we? You know, whether it be in counseling or in some other avenue, you know, you sit down with a person and, and, um, you know, and, you know, well, you know, I got divorced, but it was all her fault. It was all his fault. You know, they were a miserable person to live with. Well, I wonder if maybe she's not sitting in another office somewhere saying the exact same thing. You know, it's all, it was all his fault. He was a horrible, miserable person uh, to live with. It's usually necessary for one to look at themselves if they are to truly understand why their marriage failed, if they are ever to improve and be a worthy spouse again someday. A marriage is one of life's most important decisions. It should be approached with a level of spiritual maturity and a desire to please God first. I believe marriage to be one of God's greatest gifts. But, but as usual, we discover sinful human beings have taken this beautiful covenant relationship known as marriage and they have distorted it uh, and, and, and have caused many to develop a very cynical view of marriage leading, leading to many uh, many. Uh, humorous things that are uh, carried about in our culture. I, I, heard, I heard this the other day. Many gar- girls marry men just like their fathers, which may explain why so many mothers cry at weddings. <laughs> I, heard, I heard another one. I heard of a Sunday school teacher who was trying to demonstrate the difference between right and wrong. She said, all right, children, let's take an example. She said, if I were to go into a man's pocket and take his wallet with all of his money, what would that make me? To which a child in the back answered, that would make you his wife. <laughs> John Butler's commentary on this passage of Scripture discovered that the success of a marriage, listen, the success of a marriage is not so much a matter of who is doing the choosing of the potential mate as it is the criteria assigned in order to be chosen as a potential mate. Now let me just let me just kind of let me just kind of say that again because that's a mouthful but it's a it is a life changer it is a game changer. The success of a marriage is not dependent 
necessarily on who is going to, who is going to be the one to choose the potential life mate. The success of a marriage is, is, is maybe better suited as to look at what is the criteria assigned in order to be chosen. In other words, in our culture today, we are comfortable with the individual that is going to marry being given the freedom to choose who they marry, who they will marry. But, but what if that person has no clue what to look for in a potential spouse? Or, or even worse yet, what if that person has no clue how to be a godly and a, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a person that is prepared to be a spouse? Then is the marriage going to succeed? See, we, we read this passage of Scripture and say, well, that's so backwards, and I'm sure glad we don't do it that way. And yet, as I, as I examine this passage of Scripture, and as I read through these things, I can tell, I can tell that this marriage is likely going to succeed, and it is likely going to last, even though Isaac and Rebekah will not, will not meet one another, will not even see one another's fates until the day that they marry. Because it's not so much who's doing the choosing. You see, our marriages today so often are focused on the superficial. You know, how, how does this person make me feel when I'm around them? You know, do we, do we match one another? You know, do we, uh, you know, do we have some of the same interests? And, and, and as a result, that's, that's a lot of times what we're looking for. Is there a spark? Is there a chemistry? And I'm not saying those things should be dismissed altogether, but I'm simply saying, listen, there are more important things to consider when, when looking at a life spouse. Abraham's servant was chosen to find Isaac's wife. And that sounds alarming to us. But I want you to understand something. It resulted in a lifelong relationship because the parameters around which this bride would be chosen mattered a whole lot more to the marriage's success than the fact that Isaac wouldn't get the opportunity to select her himself. Now, I wonder in this room today how many of you, how many of you have either children or grandchildren who are not yet married living in your home or as part of your family? Would you raise your hand high in the air if you have children or you have grandchildren living in your home that have not yet married? That's a significant portion of the room this morning. I wonder how many of you are sitting here and you're saying, I'm one of those children, I'm one of those grandchildren, I've not yet married, but I Certainly would like to be someday. Would you raise your hand high in the air? Some of you are raising it higher than others. Uh, but yeah, we look around, we see a number of single folks here in our congregation this morning. Can I, can I just, can I just simply say that this message is, is for all of us. It's for all of us. For those of you that have children, you've, you've already made that decision to enter into that covenant relationship yourself. This message is for you so that you might know how to pray. How to pray, God, God, would you give, would you give my son this type of a bride? God, would you give my daughter this type of a, of a, of a husband, a worthy spouse? And in addition to that, not only does it help you to know how to pray, but it also will give you some counsel on how to train your children in the home as they're growing up. Because one of these days, listen, a lot of times we get our focus on, wonder what the person's going to be like who's going to marry my son. But you know what you have an opportunity? You have an opportunity to shape. You have an opportunity to shape your own child so that they can be the worthy, godly type of spouse that is going to marry someone someday. For those of you that are sitting in the room this morning, you've not yet married, you're not in a covenant relationship, but you sure would like to be someday, then this would, I believe this gives us a template for what to look for in a spouse as well as to help us to understand that this is what I ought to develop in my own life as I consider 
and prepare myself for marriage. Let me share with you four or five factors that this bride for Isaac was, was chosen based upon. In other words, she, she, would not, she would not be chosen unless she passed the test in these various areas. And so allow me to share these factors with you. Number one, and I, I start here because this is where the text starts, but I also start here because I believe it's the most important. Number one, number one, what made Rebecca a suitable companion, life's mate for Isaac, number one was the faith factor. The faith factor. We, we discover that in verses 1 to 12. And I believe that this is absolutely the most important factor of all. We learn from this text several truths. And I, I want you to see them. They jump off the page at us. Number one, the first thing that we discover as we consider Abraham bringing his servant in and, and, and kind of you know, building the, you know, sort of the parameters around how this is all going to work. The first thing that he says that is abundantly clear, he says this to his servant. He says, listen, a Canaanite, number one, a Canaanite would never be a suitable spouse for a child of Abraham. Some of you need to mark that, write that down somewhere, maybe in the flyleaf of your Bible, or maybe make a mental note of that. And understand what is found here on this screen this morning. And that is this. A Canaanite, a Canaanite will never make a suitable spouse for a child of Abraham. Now here's, here's the point. Abraham had now been in Canaan for a significant period of his life. By this point, he's lived there for more than 65 years. He had had plenty of opportunities to observe the people that he lived around. And one conclusion that he had formed was that the daughters of this land the daughters of the of the men who lived around him, these these young ladies would never be a suitable bride for his son Isaac. Never. Never. Canaanites were known for paganism. Canaanites were known for idolatry. Canaanites were known for wickedness. And can I just say that, listen, while this is Old Testament, you, you should understand that this is not an inconsistent theme with the rest of Scripture. Though, though, though the rest of the words that we, that we often refer to have yet to be written, Abraham is on to something here in the early part of the world's history. As a man of faith, he looks around at the world and he says to himself, and he says to his servant, may God forbid that my son never marry a young lady like that. The Bible reveals similarly. The Bible tells us, Deuteronomy chapter 7, the law is being given to Moses, and here's what the law says. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly." Don't take the word of your pastor and just say, well, that's, that's the reason why. No, God said thousands of years ago that when we marry our, our godly boys to ungodly girls, and when we marry our godly girls to ungodly boys, you know what happens? It doesn't happen that the godliness rubs off on the ungodly and makes the ungodly more godly. No, no, sadly, the opposite happens every single time. And we all sit around and we say, well, you know, maybe, maybe they'll be the exception. No, no, listen, you, you're never the exception to what God has clearly stated. 
The Bible is clear that a, that, a, that a godly person who unequally yokes himself together with an ungodly person is going to struggle. And we make, we, we make all of the excuses and all of the rationalization, all of the justification that we want to in our minds. I've talked to good kids who grew up in this church, kids who I was a youth pastor for, and they find themselves in a relationship or developing romantic feelings towards someone one of the questions, you know, maybe they met them at work or they met them at some event or some whatever the case might be. And I'll ask the question, are they saved? Do they know the Lord? And I almost know immediately whether they do or not because they get real nervous. They kind of hang their head and they put their hands in their pockets and they start to say things like, well, you know, we haven't gotten that far. Let me just tell you something. Don't go anywhere until you figure that out. I'm just simply saying, you're headed for disaster. Here, here's some of the things they'll say. Well, you know, I, I, I think they go to church. And then they'll say something like this. But they're really a really nice person. Well, I just said, you know something, Canaanites can be nice people too. Abraham says, I don't want my son marrying a nice person. I want my son marrying a godly person. So understand the faith factor is of utmost importance. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You fashion that little son or that little daughter of yours your whole life and you pour into them good manners. You pour into them Bible manners and you turn them over to someone who is familiar with evil communications and that's all they've known all of their life and you will find, you will find that the good manners that you have poured into your child will be corrupted in a hurry. The Bible's clear. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. The Bible says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? There are far too many born-again young people toying, playing around with the idea of dating a lost person. I just have to tell you, this should not even be a possibility based upon scriptural teaching. It shouldn't even be a thought in your mind. Abraham understood this danger, though he did not have the wealth of Scripture to draw from that we do. Listen, we must do better. Parents, parents, pour that into your young person. Don't even think, don't even think about entering into a romantic relationship with someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Don't even think about dating a person, not just, not just someone who's saved. I'm talking about, don't we want our children to marry someone who's sold out to the Lord? who loves God with all of their heart, is going to lead your children and your grandchildren to serve the Lord with all of their days. The faith factor, a Canaanite, a Canaanite would never be a suitable spouse for a child of Abraham. Because Abraham represents, listen, represents people of faith. We could take this same thought and we could apply it to every one of us here today. A Canaanite, someone who does not know the Lord, someone who has not been regenerated in heart and in life and in mind, will never make a suitable bride, will never make a suitable husband for those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior. But oh, there's, a second, there's a second thought as it relates to the faith factor, and that is this. If we consider finding a spouse, the faith factor, we, we have to secondly trust God. Trust God. See, something happens in verse, verses 5 to 8. And, and maybe some of that's even happening in your own mind right now. Here, here's what a lot of people do. They begin to play the what-if game. What if? Some of you, you maybe have some single young people that 
uh, are in your home or perhaps that once were in your home and now they've got their own home, but they've not married yet. And we start to maybe begin even to lower our standards just a little bit because we want so badly for them to find someone and for them to have a, a life partner like we've enjoyed and we begin to play the what-if game. That's what the servant does. Look in verse number five. And the servant said unto him, peradventure. That's a really big word for what if. That's what it means. He's saying, he's saying this, what if? What if the woman that I select is not willing to follow me unto this land? Should I, should I then take your son from this land and, 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 and take him to that land so that he can live there? What if? Abraham's Abraham's answer is a strong answer, and it says this. Listen, trust God. Trust God. Leave that in the Lord's hands. The point is this. If Abraham didn't want his son marrying a Canaanite, would it become necessary for his son to move back to the place God had led Abraham away from 65 years prior if that woman who lived there refused to come and to live here? Abraham, not only, not only did he forbid a wife of the Canaanites for his son, but he also forbade his son from moving back to Haran in order to marry a young lady from there. What was Abraham saying? Abraham was saying this, trust God. While his servant asked, what if? Abraham was content to trust the Lord, to lead in his time and in his way. But what he was not willing to do was to interrupt or leave the place where God had called him. Now, 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 this is important and this is so key. Because I've watched, I've watched his kids go off to college and, and they're there to get an education. But you know as well as I do that a lot of kids, they're not just there to get an education, they're there to find a spouse. And, and sometimes, listen, sometimes our kids feel like failures if they can go through four years of college and not find a spouse. Sometimes they do. God, God forbid that we would put that kind of pressure on them. Because listen, this is a, this is a God thing. This isn't, a, this isn't something where we can, we can build like a little fence around things and say, if you're not married by this point, you know, everybody gets married at a different point in a different time. Sometimes our kids come home from college and they've got a degree and they've flourished and, and they've done well academically and they've got a bright career in front of them, but they almost feel like, you know, like they're, they're, they're second rate or they're almost like losers because they came home from college and they didn't find someone to marry. And here's what ends up happening. They, some of them, they settle here for a little while, but then eventually they leave their home church because they think, well, there's got to be somebody somewhere else. I haven't met them yet, so let me go somewhere else to figure out who it is. Or maybe they re relocate to another city in the elusive hopes of finding a spouse. And you know what they're doing? They're continually playing the what-if game, per-adventure game. I, I haven't met the person I'm going to marry yet here, so what if, I, what if I change some things in my life? What if I change churches? What if I change and move to a new state? What if I switch and go to a different college? What if I settle into a different career? What if I do this and what if I do that? And I just have to say, listen, I have to say, at some point, we must be willing to simply trust the Lord and to wait on Him. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with just saying, you know what, God... I have done everything in my power and it hasn't worked. And maybe, just maybe, what I need to do is I need to do what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. 
You know what I discovered a long time ago? I discovered a long time ago, God is a whole lot better at doing his job than I am at doing his job. Sometimes I try to force things, and sometimes I try to maneuver things and manipulate things and coerce things, and it never works. But you know what I discover? I discover I sit back and I wait on God. God never fails. Never fails. So Abraham is saying to the servant who's saying, what if? Peradventure. Some of you, maybe you're saying, what if? Maybe my, maybe my kid needs a, uh, needs a change of scenery. Maybe I need a change of scenery. Maybe I need to do something different. And you know what? You know what Abraham said? Abraham said, we're not going to pull, we're not going to play that game. My, my son, my daughter, I, my, myself, we're not, we're not moving from the place that God has called us just so we, just so we might be able to, to, to force some things to, to work out according to what our plan is. We're going to trust God. Those are the third thought as we consider the faith factor. And that is this, pray fervently. Pray fervently. Would you look in verse number 12? The servant makes his way to Haran, where Abraham's told him to go. And before he ever says a word to anybody in that land, look what he does, verse number 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee. What does he do? He prays. And he says this, he says, Lord, I believe I'm in the right place. It's the place my master has sent me. Lord, I'm praying that you'd bring that person into my life. Lord, would you, would you do a work in this place? Interestingly enough, the servant arrives at the place where Abraham instructed him to go, and he went, he went to the place he knew the single women would frequent. I just want to say that while we're going to trust God and while we're going to pray fervently, we're also going to use our brains and our common sense. And some of you are chuckling a little bit, but I, I marvel. I marvel at people. You know, they come to church and 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 they sit in the pew and and uh, and they say, you know, you know, this place isn't very friendly. Well, it could be because you walked in the door as we were beginning our opening song, and you walked out the door before we said the final amen. It's gonna be hard to find people to be real friendly when when that's sort of the habit or the pattern. Or some people, they don't do that, but they walk in the door and they do one of these numbers. They sit in their pew and they cross their elbows and they have a scowl on their face the whole time. I don't think too many people are going to want to get real friendly with someone looking like that. I'm just simply saying, listen, we're going to trust God, we're going to pray fervently, and we're going to wait on the Lord. But by the same token, listen, by the same token, we're going to, we're going to have to use some common sense. He went to where the single girls were. Isn't that interesting? A smart guy. The single girls were, were, were the ones who would be drawing water in Eastern culture. That was their responsibility was to go to the well and, and draw water. According to verse number 11, he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. So this guy's no dummy. I'm here to find a bride. I'm not going to go where the married women congregate. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm not, I mean, by the way, I'm here to find a bride. I'm not going to go where the single guys hang out. Right? I'm going to where the young ladies come to draw water. He knew that that's where they would be. And that's where he went. And while he was there, the Bible says that he began to pray fervently. And I would just say, wait on the Lord and pray fervently. But listen, get, invo- get involved in a, in, in a group uh, here in our church in which there's single people. Encourage maybe your children who maybe are, are drifting a little bit. Hey, come on back to church and get involved and get faithful and see what, see what God does and wait on the Lord. Pray daily. Pray daily for your children's 
future spouse. The Bible says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The Bible says in James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given him. James 4.2, the Bible says, ye have not because ye ask not. And I would just simply say, listen, be specific with God. Tell God the type of person that you long for your child to marry. I want my child to marry someone who's faithful, someone who's loving, someone who's kind, someone who's servant-hearted. It seems that exactly, listen, exactly what the servant prayed or asked for in his prayer, he was granted in the person of Rebecca. We must hurry. But notice there's a second factor, a second factor, and that is, that is the submission factor. We've considered the faith factor. That's most important beyond a shadow of a doubt. But notice, I want you to consider with me the submission factor. Would you look in verse number eight? And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swear to him concerning that matter. I heard of two lines of husbands in heaven. One line was for the dominant husband's. And one was for the passive and submissive husbands. The submissive husband line extended almost out of sight. However, there was one man. There was one man in the dominant husband line. Yet he was small and timid and he appeared anything but a dominant husband. When the angel inquired as to why he was in this line, he said, my wife told me to stand here. You know, it's not a popular thought in our culture, but it is still entirely biblical that a wife submit herself to her husband. Now think about this. I almost almost hesitate to say it in here expecting someone in this group to be upset. And we're in the house of God. We're we're in God's house where we gather and we, we claim that we believe this book, we believe the Bible, and we want to live by it. And yet almost the preacher has to sort of say it hesitantly that, that wives should still submit to their husbands. But that is what the Bible says, isn't it? While it is not a popular thing, it is a Bible truth, and we would do well to build our lives upon its teaching. The Bible says in Genesis 3.16, under the woman, he said, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, I get it. It's not, maybe not fun. It's not popular. But here's, here's what you understand. This idea of submission, it goes back to the curse. It goes back to the curse. God said, God said that, listen, the husband's going to rule over the wife because the wife made some poor decisions on her own outside of the headship of her husband we assume we assume that adam had communicated some things to eve there in the garden because when serpent came and tempted her she seemed to indicate you know that's the tree we're not supposed to eat of words you've heard that from perhaps she'd heard it from her husband maybe god had communicated that to her as well the Bible says in Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Abraham taught his servant that a suitable wife for Isaac would be a submissive wife, one, listen, one that would be willing to follow. Well, that's what's said there. The what if game, what if she doesn't follow me? She doesn't follow you, she's not the one for you. 
When do you figure that out? Do you figure that out after two or three years of marriage? No, no, listen, you figure that out in the dating relationship. Guys, if you're dating someone that you're considering for marriage and you, you discover, now listen, she's still under the headship of her father and ultimately that's where her allegiance lies, but there should be some things that you're able to gently lead in. And if you discover that there's pushback and there's a kickback there, then at that point, at that point, you ought to remove your, you ought to remove your presence from that life and, and, and do what Abraham said. If she's not willing to follow, then you're, then you're, then you're free from having to, to bring her back as someone who would, who would marry my son. The submission factor, super important. Notice thirdly, there's the servant factor in verse number 14. Part of the prayer that this servant prayed was this, and let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink, and she shall, she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. Abraham's servant prayed that the woman he would speak with would not only offer him to drink from her pitcher of water that she had drawn from the well, but that she would also see his thirsty camels, and she would, with unusual initiative, provide drink for them as well. What do you suppose the servant was looking for? By the way, it takes one to know one, doesn't it? Abraham had sent his servant, and the servant is sitting outside that well, and he's looking around, he's saying, what would be the best type of wife? What would be the best type of spouse? It would be one who is willing, has no problem with serving others. And so he includes that in his prayer. Lord, would you allow the, the woman that I speak to, would you, allow, would, you, would you allow for her to give me a drink? And, and of her own accord, without me having to ask, would you allow for her to be the type of person to look and see my thirsty camels and provide drink for them as well? Now, on, on the surface, that may not seem like a big deal, but I want you to understand something. This was no small request. The Bible tells us earlier in the passage of Scripture that the servant had brought 10 camels with him. Now, I'm given to understand that each of those camels could, could, if they were thirsty enough, drink up to 10 gallons of water apiece at a time. So what the servant was asking was that potentially this woman, this, this woman that he was going to talk to, that she of her own accord would say, and I'm going to give drink to your camels as well, and that she potentially be willing to draw up to 100 gallons of water out of that well for the purpose of feeding those camels. Now think about that for a moment. That's the heart of a servant. Because no, no one, no one would, would just do that on their own. Most of us, I include myself in this, most of us are looking for ways to get out of work. Right? Most of us are, are, are you know, we're going to that well and we're avoiding looking at anybody. Right? Because if this guy sees me, he's going to ask for something. I don't want any part of that. But instead, this woman has such a heart of a servant. She says, can I get you something to drink? Are, are those camels over there? Are those your camels? Well, yes, ma'am, they are. Well, they, they look like maybe they've been on a long journey. Do you suppose maybe they could use some water as well? They certainly could. I'll take care of that. Say, what's significant about that? Well, here's what's significant about that. Keeping a home and being a wife and a mother, and even to a certain extent being a husband and a father, is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. For a wife and mother to stay on top of the duties in her home 
she must not wait to be told or asked to do certain things, but rather she must be looking diligently for what needs to be done and to be faithful to do it. Christ, by the way, Christ's kingdom itself requires the heart of a servant if one is going to be great and find true joy. You know, in Christ's kingdom, servant-hearted leadership is important as well. Jesus told his disciples, he said, you know, you look at the Gentiles and their princes and their, their leaders, they exercise authority and dominion over them. He says, but it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Bible says in Luke chapter 22, verses 26 and 27, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But listen to what Jesus said. But I am among you, as he that serveth. See, you got to understand, in God's economy, things are, things are sort of upside down. Things are backwards. Je- Jesus says, we would all admit, the person sitting down to meat, that's the great person. But look at me. Look at my example. I'm not the one sitting at me. I'm the one among you as he that serveth. And may every one of us in this room determine, I'm not here to lead. I'm not here to exercise dominion or power or authority. I'm simply here to serve the Lord to the best of my ability. Servant factor, so very important. Notice fourthly, the purity factor. The purity factor. We're talking about things that will make for a great spouse. And this isn't about, this isn't about who's going to marry, you know, and who's going to choose and, and how beautiful they are, how handsome they are, how, how good of a career they're potentially going to have. No, these are things that are deeper than that, things that are more important than that. The purity factor, would you look in verse 16? The Bible says, and the damsel was very fair to look upon. Notice, a virgin, neither had any man known her. The scriptures emphasize something beautiful about this woman that the servant chose to engage with as a potential bride for Isaac. Here's, here's what it emphasizes. It noted that she was a virgin, neither had any man known her. Now the servant of Abraham would not have approached a woman who was not morally pure. So now how would you know that? How would you know who's morally pure and who's not morally pure? That's a good question, isn't it? How do you know that, church? Oh, there's, 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 there's ways to tell, aren't there? You, you, spend, you spend time around certain people. The Bible says that by their fruits you shall know them. There are certain things that you can, you can look for to discern and to determine. Maybe it's the way that they talk, the things that they talk about, the things that they, maybe it's the places that they frequent. Perhaps, perhaps maybe it's the way that they present themselves. Can, can help you to understand whether that person has a heart for purity or not. I don't know exactly what that would have looked like in, in Abraham's day, but I am certain, I am certain that he would have, he would have before he approached a, a certain young woman, he would have given opportunity or had opportunity to discern, okay, she looks to be morally pure. It makes a difference. It's important. Just as submission is no longer popular in our day and age, so virtue is no longer popular in our day and age. But listen, it's still Bible. It's still Bible. Did you know that 
the, the following was said about the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. It says this, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. I love this passage. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. You know, some have observed, some have observed that men like to date loose girls, but they want to marry a pure girl. There's people that have said things like that. Can I say that this characteristic is almost unheard of in our culture? I'm talking about a pure girl, a pure young lady. But I want you to know it's still the biblical model. A woman who has saved herself morally from marriage should be, should be considered one who will keep herself only for her husband within marriage. Again, because the marriage relationship, it depicts or pictures Christ and his church. Purity is expected in both husband and wife throughout their lives, pre-marriage and post-marriage. That, that's the model. That's the biblical model. That's what pleases God. And listen, that has not changed, though we're in 2023. The scriptures have not changed. That's still what God's looking for. So you're not married yet? Save yourself or your spouse. Pray that God gives you a pure spouse and determine, you know what? I'm only gonna date someone who's pure. I'm only gonna date someone who, 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 is, who has saved themselves for me and for this relationship. Notice fifthly and finally, we see the separation factor. The separation factor. Finally, after Rebecca meets every qualification that has been established as a bride for Isaac, Abraham's servant gets the opportunity to meet Rebecca's family. We see that he explains why he has come towards the tail end of the chapter. He tells them he's come to find a wife for Isaac. And he rehearses really the whole thing, how this all came about. And by the way, he, 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 discovers, he discovers the very woman he speaks to happens to be Abraham's brother's daughter. Now think about that for just a moment. What are the chances? And yet that's what God does. He tells them how specifically he prayed and how Rebecca met every one of his requests. And the men, the, men, the leaders in Rebecca's life, they can, they can discern that this truly is a God thing, that God has done this. And they agree to let her go to marry Isaac but here's what they do. They request, would you give us 10 extra days with her? Verse 55, the Bible says that, and her brother and her mother said, let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least 10. After that, she shall go. You have to understand what's happening here. Rebecca's leaving. She's going on a long journey, about 1,000 miles. The chances are that she'll never see them again in this life. You know, these are the days before Greyhound and the days before Amtrak, the days before Continental or United, or I guess Continental doesn't even exist anymore, United and Delta and American Airlines. I mean, there's, it's not so simple as hopping on an airplane and flying halfway around the world. And so they're understanding, we're never going to see her again. Would you give us just a couple of weeks more to spend with her? The servant, the servant says, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I, I've wanted to make this trip with haste and I've got things to get back to maybe I have a family to get back to and I have responsibilities to get back to and he says would you just allow us to go now and here's what they said they said well let's call for Rebecca let's ask her what she wants to do so they call Rebecca into the room Rebecca we would like for you to stick around for a couple of more weeks you've agreed to marry this man we've agreed to allow you to marry this man what do you say and Rebecca says I will go verse 61 I will go she is willing to leave family, friends, and familiarity behind to marry a gentleman that she's never met. 
She agrees to follow this man who will lead her to her new husband, her new life, and her new home. Can I say that an essential ingredient in marriage is a willingness to separate from father and mother and to cleave to one's spouse? Many marriages have been ruined because of an inability or an unwillingness to do this. The Bible says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Psalm 45, 10, hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. I heard of a couple who were visiting some friends. When those friends received a telephone call from their recently married daughter, after several tense minutes on the phone, the mother pulled the phone away from her ear and she told the father of this girl to pick up the extension that these newlyweds had had their first big fight. In a few moments, the father rejoined everyone, the guests as well as his wife, and he tersely explained, she said she wanted to come home. The wife asked, well, what did you tell her? To which the father replied, I told her she was home. She was home. When you, when you stand on this platform or some other place and you commit your life to another person, that's your new home. That's it. There's no going, there's no going back. Life changes. You've entered into a covenant relationship. The separation factor is a biblical thing. Which of these areas, church families, we conclude this morning, can you see a personal need for improvement in? Think about them. The faith factor, most important. Can I say, can I say you'll never be the spouse, you'll never be the type of husband or wife that God would have you to be until you first of all know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. A Canaanite, A Canaanite can't possibly be the spouse that a child of Abraham can be. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never repented of your sin, you've never placed your faith and trust in the Lord, can I tell you, that's the decision you need to make. If I were you, I'd run to this altar this morning and I'd get that settled. I wouldn't spend another day uncertain of my eternal destiny. But I wonder how many of you sitting here saying, you know, the faith factor hasn't really been that important for me. As far as just making me the person or maybe even the type of person that I would marry, can I I tell you that 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 ought to be at the top of the list, the faith factor? How about the submission factor, the servant factor, the purity factor, the separation factor? Your home and your family might always struggle to be the place that it could be unless, unless you determine to strengthen yourself by God's grace in this area. Why 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 don't we just bring it to the Lord today? God speak to you about a specific area in your life? God say, this is for you. This isn't for the person. So often we sit in church, that's for the person over there. That's for the person in the balcony. No, this is for you. Let's deal with it today. What are you doing? What are you doing to prepare your children who will one day be someone's husband or wife? Often we think about who they will marry. Can I tell you, we have a great responsibility to prepare our children to be a godly life partner. And finally, are you praying? Are you praying for the person your children will one day marry? Or, if you're single today, are you praying for the person you will one day marry? If you haven't, today would be a great time to begin 